Our Advent sermon series is entitled, Savior of the Nation, Come. And over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking very closely at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. If you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you're probably familiar with the, one of the strong, powerful characters in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah. His book spans 66 chapters, probably the greatest repository of Christmas, of Christmas prophecies that we find in the whole Old Testament. But the story of Isaiah is a fascinating story in itself. The, the prophet Isaiah was, lived and had his ministry about 700 years BC, and for the first 39 chapters of the book, he's talking to the people of this current time, and he's warning them that they are facing a dangerous catastrophe. The people of Israel lived in a dangerous time. They were surrounded by very aggressive, powerful world empires, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. And the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, the political leaders, had basically forsaken their trust upon the Lord and instead had come up with political schemes, economic plans, and all kinds of ways to save themselves. And so prophets like Isaiah were calling the people back to the covenant relationship, calling them and saying, remember God created you and he formed you and he promised to be with you, so trust in him. But they wouldn't listen. And so for the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, he warns them that unless they give up their unfaithfulness, unless they come back to the Lord, Israel would be destroyed, Jerusalem would be destroyed, the temple would be leveled, and they would be left without any hope. Then we come to chapter 40, and the message of Isaiah shifts. Now his audience is really 150 years in the future. His audience are those people who are already living in exile, people who have experienced the desolation of, of being abandoned and being, having their country destroyed. And he tells them in the words of Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1, the words of the hymn we just sang. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak softly and tenderly to Jerusalem, but also make it very clear that she has served her sentence. Her sin is taken care of, forgiven. She's been punished enough, more than enough. Now it's over and done with. Advent is a time of preparation. It's a time of preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, preparing our hearts to welcome our Savior, preparing to live our lives as uh, people of God. And it's also, even as we celebrate the first coming, we look forward to the second coming, when Christ will come in glory and take all of his children be with him forever. But that preparation, that waiting, that anticipation, that forming of our faith life is hard work. There's a lot of distractions, a lot of mixed messages, so many things just screaming to attract our attention. There's an old Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show about a woman in prison who became good friends with a prison caretaker. The prison caretaker's job was when a prisoner died, the caretaker would ring a bell. He would then get the body, put it in a casket, nail that casket shut. 
Then they would place the casket on a wagon and take the wagon outside of the prison walls to the graveyard where they would bury the corpse. Knowing this routine, the woman devised an escape plan and she shared it with the caretaker whom she, with whom she had developed a close friendship. She said, the next time the bell rings, I'll leave my cell and I'll sneak into the coffin with a dead body. You can nail the lid shut, take the coffin outside the prison, bury the coffin. And because there'll be enough air for a while, I'll stay in the coffin until dark. And then you can come and dig me up and, and take me out of the coffin and I'll be free and we can be together. The caretaker agreed to the plan. So one day the woman heard the ringing of the death bell. She rose, she walked down the hall, she crawled into the coffin containing the dead body. Soon she heard the pounding of the hammer and the nails. The coffin was lifted into the wagon, or lifted onto the wagon, taken outside the courtyard, put into the graveyard, lowered into the ground. And as the dirt was poured on top of the coffin, the woman began to giggle out loud. I'm free! I'm free! This body is going to take me to freedom. Feeling curious, she had a struggle with it because it was dark. <laughs> she took a match, lit the match, and saw who she was buried with. And she looked and she saw it was the caretaker. <laughs> the scene ends with screaming. Screaming, screaming, as only Alfred Hitchcock could do, as the scene slowly fades away. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you've been buried alive? Sure you have. I know I have. We're sometimes we're just buried in questions. If God is so good, why do I hurt so bad? If Jesus is the light, why am I left in the dark? Maybe we've been buried in disappointment. You're just not like your older brother. You're not like our last boss. He was nice. Maybe sometimes we're buried in responsibilities. As you walk out the door, the boss says, Oh yeah, there's a 30-page report I want you to read, and I want a summary tomorrow morning, first thing. Or maybe, honey, it's the kids have a softball game and a baseball game, and they're each on other sides of the town. Sometimes we're buried in the past. That minute we lost our temper, the day we lost control, the years we lost our priorities. And on top of that, literally, we're buried every day in our self-assertion, our self-righteousness, our self-satisfaction, our total focus on self. The Babylonian captivity was Israel's burial. They were buried, boxed in, six feet under. There wasn't screaming, there were heavy sighs. The Israelites in exile felt that they had lost it all. Temple was in ruins, the city destroyed, and in the back of their minds they had to think, wait a minute, if we lost, doesn't that mean that our God lost? If the Babylonians were able to destroy the temple of our God, doesn't that mean that their gods are stronger than our gods? Or maybe the situation was even worse. Maybe there is no God. 
Or if God exists, he doesn't care about us. Or maybe God is real. And God just decided he didn't love us anymore and left this all happen. Whatever their thoughts were, those people in exile faced a hopeless future. And so they said, the only thing we can do is face facts. It's time to forget God. It's time to deal with life the way it really is. We can, we can make our own way. They felt that there was no comfort. They felt that they were hopeless. They felt that they were totally in despair. Maybe you felt that way. I found an interesting fact, and I love interesting facts as I was researching for this sermon. Do you know the word bedlam, B-E-D-L-A-M, bedlam, comes from the word Bethlehem, the city where Jesus was born. It happened like this. The, the hospital of St. Mary of Bethlehem was established in the year 1247 in London. But the local inhabitants around the hospital of Bethlehem didn't speak the king's English. They kind of slurred the language. And so when they pronounced the name of that hospital, they called it Bedlam instead of Bethlehem. Years later, uh, that hospital was converted into an insane asylum. And so the name Bedlam, the word in English Bedlam, that means noise and confusion and chaos, came from being associated with the hospital of Bethlehem, except they pronounced it Bedlam. Leave it up to human beings to confuse Bethlehem with Bedlam. To take Christmas and make it so full of noise and confusion and chaos. Maybe we know more about Bedlam than we do about Bethlehem. The story that Isaiah tells is that God wasn't finished with his people. Into the silence of Israel's dislocation, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. Make it very clear that my people have served their sentence. Their sin is taken away. Their sin is forgiven. In the words of our text, Isaiah does an about-face. Instead of warning them about the dangers, about telling them they're going to be destroyed, in the midst of their destruction, he says, now God is going to act. When it looks like there's no hope, the message is comfort. Comfort my people. The delightful message from Isaiah is that God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God's plan will be accomplished on earth even as it is in heaven. Into that pain, into that awful darkness of, of, of dislocation, he sent his messengers with a message, comfort, comfort my people. Israel's hurt was deep, but God's comfort is deeper. Like us, the people who were deported from Jerusalem were dead in their transgressions and sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, acted to take away their sins. The message of Isaiah is filled with promises of God acting, of words of comfort to the people, of signs of God's promise going forward in history. This comforting gospel is not present because Israel changed their minds. The comforting gospel is not present because the people were so repentant. God's comfort is present because God loves his people. 
despite their sin, despite their alienation, despite their unfaithfulness, God says, I am going to turn you around. I am going to bring you back. I am going to send one who will save you. Throughout the Bible, God encourages and commands the prophets to urge their people to turn. But the prophets became weary of this message of repentance because the people never listened. Oh, sometimes they would change for a moment to get out from underneath a particular bad punishment, but generally they found themselves unable to turn back to God. So the prophets don't say, now will you turn? No, instead they say, we know you're not going to turn, but God is going to turn you around. God will bring about an event that is so powerful that it's going to change the world. And it's God acting in that event that is going to bring you back to him. In the first reading tonight in Isaiah's, that's actually Isaiah's call to ministry. When God called him to be a prophet, God asked the question, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responded, Here am I, send me. Because Israel first stepped away from God, God sent the prophet Isaiah and others to Israel. He said, you are my people. And even though for a season I'm going to allow you to suffer the consequences of your sin, you are still my people. God calls them back to the initial covenant he made with, his, with their forefather Abraham. I will be God to you and you will be my people. The same promise he makes to us when he says, I am your God, and you will be my people. God calls Israel, God calls us back to that same promise. In Advent, we look forward to the coming of Christmas. We celebrate it in many ways, but what we're celebrating is God's fulfilling of all these promises. God's action in history God breaking into our time and to our space and saying, I'm going to do it myself. In my son, I am going to take your sins upon him and I am going to affect your reconciliation. I am going to empower you. I'm going to enable you. I'm going to fill you with my spirit so that you will be my people. You will have the opportunity and the ability to be my people. Those who are in Christ Jesus know that God is a source of comfort. It's a powerful gospel promise. It's God's loving countenance shining upon his people. Not that we have paid the price ourselves, but that God paid the price with the sacrifice of his son. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus. Some 40 days after his birth, he was brought to the temple for the rite of purification. And it's recorded in, in Luke chapter 2. And there are two people that are in that story when Jesus was brought to the temple. The first is the prophet Simeon, who had been waiting for the fulfilling of the Lord's prophet. He had received a message from God that he would not die until the Messiah promised by God made his appearance on the earth. So he was in the temple that day when Jesus, 40 days old, is brought by his mother. And Simeon lays eyes on him and loudly proclaims that in this child, the consolation of Israel, 
all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled. There was another individual, the prophetess Anna, who also echoed this hope when she speaks about Jesus. To all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel, she said, this is the one. This is Israel's redemption. In this child, God is going to act to fulfill his promises. That's what we celebrate. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we look forward to. When Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom of God throughout the Gospels, he is saying the exile is over. God is in control. God is reigning again. And that freedom comes through the forgiveness of sins paid for all people on Good Friday. Jesus, whose birth we celebrate at Christmas time as a babe of Bethlehem, came on a mission of salvation, a mission of redemption, a, a mission to deliver all who are in exile. The message to the world was, go ahead, take your best shot. And the enemy marshaled every weapon of mass destruction that ha they had available. Judas and Pilate and Herod, thorns and nails and spears and darkness and sweat and lots and lots of screaming. And then total silence crucified, died, buried. That's what Good Friday looks like. At the end of the day, there's nothing but a bottomless pit, a grave sealed, lifeless, smelling of mildew and death. See the confines, the darkness, the sealed stone. Trapped in transgressions and sins, silence, screaming in silence, Without Christ, that would be us. But like the woman in the story, the woman in the casket, maybe we need to light a match and see who we're buried with. Get this, Romans chapter 6. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And again in Colossians, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. That's the power behind all those promises. You see, in our baptism, God promises that we are baptized not just into this church, we are not just baptized as Christians, we are baptized into Jesus Christ, baptized into his death, and baptized into his resurrection. So the one in the casket with us is Jesus Christ, who's already been raised. He's been raised to a new life, and in our baptism gives us the power of the Spirit that we can live that new life. That's why Isaiah could say, comfort, comfort my people through water and the word, you and I have been buried and raised with Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the power to live as sons and daughters of God. Our certain defeat is, a, is changed in a stunning bottom of the ninth, come from behind victory, the Hail Mary of all Hail Mary passes. We were going to lose. We had no hope. And suddenly we are, we are delivered to an eternal victory. Our buried body.
boxed-in scream is forever changed into a baptized, blood-bought, forgiven, spirit-filled, endless hallelujah. Comfort. Comfort, my people. Jesus has come, and he is coming again. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us pray.